Wow, the presence of God is just so precious here today. It's so intense, so sweet. And uh, that's, all we, that's all we want because when God is here, things change and things happen. You know, I was praying this morning. I said, God, I just want you to touch hearts and lives of people, whether they're here, whether they're on Facebook or YouTube or wherever they may be, if they're watching us a month down the road. I just want your presence to reach out and touch people and make a change in the heart. And the message I have today is called Reviving the Remnant. And everything we've been kind of ta- what Wayne talked about, what, what every one of you have talked about, is, is really all about the remnant. And, you know, every one of us can choose to be the remnant or we can choose not to be the remnant. Really? You know that? If you, I've been reading a lot of the Old Testament, especially. I've decided to, to read chronologically through the kings and the prophets. And so I'm in the book of First and Second Samuel. And so a lot just kind of blew out at me this week. And, uh, you know, I always love to talk about the presence of God. And I've, I've taught out of these books before, but God just showed me some things this week that I just love. And, uh, you know, he always wrecks me first. I was just up this morning just weeping before the Lord, repenting mostly as, as just the word. I mean, you know, sometimes we take, take God so for granted. You know, we've been taught this, and so, you know, like you were talking about, Wayne, we've just been taught that there's distinct, there's no distinction in the body of Christ. No two people in here are alike, right? Our DNA proves that. No two people in here are alike, but there's no one in here that's better than someone else for any reason, for any reason. And we, we talked last week about the only right we have to judge someone is on their actions, and that's what the Word tells us in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, we have to judge the body. Those who call themselves believers, we have to judge them, but we judge them on their actions. And you, you talk, I love the first John. I mean, you're right. He slaps you in the face. And you get up and he slaps you again. And you just, if you don't like that, like you said, you just keep on reading. He's going to knock you down again. But if your heart is for God, you know, that's, that's not the case. But I want to talk about reviving the remnant and you know, the first thing I would say and a question I would ask me or you is, is this really discussed in Scripture? And of course, the answer is yes. And I, and I just, and this is, I'm just going to flip over quickly to 2 Kings 19. is when Hezekiah was praying to God for, uh, about King Sennacherib. And God responded in this way. He said to, to, to Jeremiah, he says, For a remnant of my people will spread out from Jerusalem, a group of survivors from Mount Zion, the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make it happen. So there is a remnant, and it's, and it's, it's God within us that makes us want to will and do His good pleasure. It's God within us that makes us passionate because He is passionate about that. He has a, He says, "I have a passionate commitment to make this happen." Well, God has a passionate commitment today to raise up the remnant. That I mean, we've talked about it for months. We've talked about it for years, actually. You know, a lot of what we've talked about for years is now coming into focus. We've talked about revival. We've talked about awakening. We've talked about so many prophetic words. We've talked about remnants. And now it's like, oh, that's what it was for. <laughs> that's what it was really all about. And, and so we, we have to, well, let me just give you a definition of what is a remnant. And the Bible dictionary says that it is a surviving component after a catastrophe. A surviving component after a catastrophe. You know, there's lots of examples of remnants in the Bible, right? Remember, what about, what about with uh, Gideon? He started out, what, 32,000 men? How many men did he end up with? 300, right? Well, you know, I was reading yesterday, and I mentioned this in prayer last night. Uh, you know, Saul started out with 2,000 men. He ends up with 600. They're still scared to death of Jonathan and his armor bearer going and wipe out the Philistines. Of course, they had a little help from God. God sent an earthquake. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it, it doesn't take too many. 
the uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary just says it's a small surviving, surviving group. Do we get the concept? A remnant is a surviving group. A remnant is surviving. It's those who are faithful to God's original truth and do not follow the apostasy of the world. Those who are faithful to God's original truth. Well, what is God's original truth? This word. That's his original truth. Isaiah 1.9 says, Except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Unless the Lord had left us. So there's, there's a purpose for the remnant. The remnant keeps the rest of it going right in a right direction. Except the Lord had left us a small remnant, we would have been like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Except the Lord leave a remnant in this nation, this nation is, is headed for to become, it's already like Sodom and Gomorrah in so many ways. But God is raising, he is passionate about raising up the remnant, I believe, with all of my heart. I believe a remnant is that small portion that represents the heart of God, who will not be defiled by the influences of the world or the pressures or compromise. That's who the remnant is. And I believe what Wayne said today, God does make a distinction. And I think that the line, and someone mentioned last night, I believe in prayer, that uh, we're getting close to drawing the line. I said, no, the line has been drawn. The line has, we're no longer close to drawing the line. The line has been drawn. And if you and I want to be a part of the remnant of God, we have to decide which part of the line we're going to stand on, right? And let me tell you, the line is so small, you don't stand on the line, (laughs) There's no room on the line. You've got to make a decision. Am I going to be for God? Am I going to be for the choose you this day who you're going to serve? We have to make that choice. So God is calling today for that remnant to arise and to revive, I believe, with all of my heart. And, you know, I've thought, and probably many of you have thought, well, we got, you know, how many times have we preached on revival in the recent years? And we're talking about, we've got to get all these people revived. We've got to get a city revived. We've got to get a nation revived. We got, we're going to have these big meetings. And we, have the, we rent these coliseums. And we've done this with back in 08. And we had the coliseums running over. And Highway Patrol said we turned away 15,000 people, right? We had miracles and signs and wonders. And people got saved and born again. Well, what has happened since then? See, the problem with revivals is none of them have lasted. <laughs> That's the problem with a revival. You go back and you study revivals in history, not a one of them have lasted. But we have to have an individual revival of our heart before we have a corporate revival. But let me tell you something. It, don't, it, not, it does not always take an army of people. It doesn't always take a multitude to make things happen. It takes God and one other person, or God and two other people, or God and a small group of people. God and one man, Moses, delivered Israel from bondage. God and one man, Moses. God and one man, David, killed Goliath while the rest of the armies were shaking in their boots. God and one woman, Esther, destroyed the the plan and the plot to destroy the Jews. God and one man, Daniel, called for the warring angels to do battle. God and one man, Jesus, saved the world. See, God does not need a committee of people. He does not need a coliseum in agreement. God needs his remnant to rise up. God needs people that will come into and they will not compromise. They will not compromise. So who are the remnant? We have a scripture in Revelation that defines who the remnant are. If you want to know how to qualify, this is the rules. This is a members-only club, by the way. Revelation 12, 17, and it says, The dragon was wroth with a woman and went to war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Who is the remnant? Those who keep the the commandments of God and those who have the testimony of Jesus. 
See, who is the devil at war with? He's not at war with the church at large. He's at war with the remnant. Because the church at large is doing nothing. As the church goes, so goes the nation, right? If the church at large was doing anything, we wouldn't have the mess we have right now in our nation. So the, the enemy is at war with the remnant. So do you want to be enlisted for war? Oh, I think I'll just pass on that one. I think I, you know, I'm not really into war stuff. I just kind of like to take it easy. You know, God calls us to everybody love everybody. We're just going to love everybody. Well, we're going to love them right into hell, right? We're going to love them right into hell. We're seeing the church shrink from keeping the commandments of God. We've seen this over the years. We've seen the church go out and embrace the culture of the world. We're seeing churches cower back even now at proclaiming who Jesus is. We're letting our media people tell us, identify the characteristics of Christ. Did you hear that clown on one of the news stations that Jesus was not a perfect man? Well, what does the word say? And what do we do? We listen to that. We have pastors telling people and telling multitudes of people that Jesus is not the only way. I can't really say that Jesus is the only way. And these are influential pastors. I just read yesterday that there was a pastor in California who oversees 1,300 churches in California who's telling his churches, don't sing and praise God. When the Word of God clearly tells us how we're supposed to worship God. See, we're seeing this cowering down. We're seeing this compromise. We're seeing a religious spirit get set in place that's causing believers to cower to the enemy. We're not fighting flesh and blood, by the way. We're not fighting political parties. We're fighting darkness. But we have the victory. We have the victory. We have to understand that. The devil wants you to think you're, you're fighting political party or you're fighting skin color or you're fighting denominations. That's what the enemy wants us to do or genders or whatever it might be. I love what Wayne said. There's no distinction in the body of Christ. We are all one. We're all equal. We're all the same. Because we serve. We're all created as the image of God. We have to understand that. But there is a remnant of people who will keep the commands. And there's a remnant of people who will not shy away from proclaiming the reality of Jesus as the Son of God. Is that you? Is that me? Someone was telling us in prayer last night that they had to draw a line in the sand with a family member because they're harassing this person because of their faith. You know, the enemy harasses. God doesn't harass. Now, it, but this person's not fighting her family member. She's fighting a spirit that's controlling that family member. But she has authority. But sometimes we have to draw a line in the sand. But I believe one of the greatest characteristics of the remnant in the day we are in is that the remnant must know how to steward the presence of God. The presence of God is critical in this day that we're in. That's what I kept getting out of the book of, as I was reading through First and Second Samuel, mostly First Samuel. The remnant will not mishandle the presence of God. The, the remnant's not in it for their own benefit. The remnant's in it for the glory of God. The remnant's in it for the... We want to make God famous, right? We're not interested in Impact Church being famous, only if God's famous here, God will take care of the rest of it. Barbara Wintrouble prophesied in 07 that the presence of God would be so strong here at Impact that people would come from other cities just to be a part of the presence. I believe that day is coming very soon because the remnant is here. And I believe the Bible teaches us that we, how we should handle, how we should respond, how we should steward the presence of God, and how we shouldn't. You know, sometimes you can learn as much by what you shouldn't do as by what you should do, right? 
So we can look at something. So God has given man, you and I, the privilege and the responsibility to to what? To house the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, right? Individually, but corporately, the church body has that responsibility. I'm reading another book. I just, I've got so many books and so little time. Lord have mercy, help me. My Kindle's getting larger and larger and larger. I started reading Michael Brown's book, Jezebel at War with America. This book was written in 2019, by the way, not before, pre-COVID. It's a powerful book, but he's, but he's talking about how that spirit has so infiltrated our nation and in our schools and in our churches. How that spirit of infidelity and immorality and adultery and seduction is, is just running through rampant through our nation and in through our churches. But how that spirit is, is warring with America. But you know who has authority over that spirit? The remnant. God would love for the whole church to be the remnant, right? Everybody calls himself a believer is not a believer. We say it all the time. You can come in here and say it all you want to. That doesn't mean you're a believer. It's a great place to be. <laughs> It's a great place to be. Why do you think they're trying to close down churches? Why do you think a portion of our church is here today? The enemy has created such a fear in the hearts and minds of people because the enemy does not want people to come together because there's power in numbers. There's authority in numbers. I've said it before and I'll say it with a smile. If you can work, you can come to church. If you can go to Walmart, you can come to church. Wear your mask and come to church if you need to wear a mask, right? If you don't want to wear a mask, that's okay too. We ask you to do social distancing. We want to do the right thing. But I'm telling you, we're not going to violate the Word of God. We're not going to violate the Word of God. I hope if that offends someone, I'm sorry. Go to a church that's going to violate it. I mean, that's, I hate to say it like that, but that's just the way it is. Okay, let me get back to my notes. I get in trouble when I drift. First Samuel 5. We're going to look at the Philistine response to the presence of God. You know, the presence of God can heal or kill, right? The presence of God will heal or kill. It depends on what's going on, right? First Samuel 5, 1 through 4 says, After the Philistines capture the ark of God... Let me back up a minute. I just got to go back and meddle a minute, okay? I said if you can work and you can go to Walmart, you can go to church. But if you're going to a church that doesn't preach truth, you don't need to be there. Right, okay. All right, back to First Samuel. Get out of that dead place. After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground of Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon. And placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it in the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in this place again, in his place again. But the next morning the same thing happened. Dagon had fall, fallen face down before the Lord, ark of the Lord again. This time his head and his hands was broken off and they were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. I mean, what better picture can you get? I mean, my goodness. Disney couldn't have done any better. Who was Dagon? He was a deity of fertility which had the hands and the face of man but the tail of a fish. He was the chief god of the Philistines and one whom the Philistines would always give thanks to after the victory. 
So it was customary when they had captured an army, they would capture their God and bring it and put it into their temple next to their higher power God. So Dagon in their mind was a higher power. So let's talk about the Philistines for a moment. Who who do the Philistines represent in scripture? And I've got some definitions, but this is summary. They represent a people out of covenant with God. They represent a people that's not in covenant with God. They're an amalgamation of many different peoples and cultures into one culture, which are all opposed to God. Does that sound familiar today in the earth? We have all these different people and, you know, they're all, we're all one. We're one. We're one. But we're all opposed to God. Right? They're not one with us. Right? If you're opposed to God, you're opposed to me. The Philistines were opposed to all true spiritual discipline. They worshipped strange gods in the form of animals. And they resorted to all kinds of sorcery and soothsaying. They were people who had lingering animosities with the Israelites and vice versa. The interesting thing, one commentary said about the Israelites where they so feared the Philistines, but yet in their mind they knew the Philistines were defeated. Does that sound like the church? We can sit all day long and say, I have authority over the power of the enemy, but oh, I'm not going to church. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sing because I don't want to offend the governor or whoever it might be or whatever it is. I'm not asking you to break laws. I'm just saying, let's just don't break God's law in the process. I mean, and the other thing is, let's don't bow down to it. There's not something that's not even a law. Right? Here I'm meddling again. Great day. I got to stay on track. I keep drifting. Let me give you another definition. This will be safe. The Philistines were rolling about people, transitory, migrating, immigrating, moving to and fro, deviating from a true course. They were rejected and they were infidels. The Philistines were raiders of God's people, intimidators, and driven by evil forces to destroy. So they sound like a nasty bunch of people, don't they? We can say that any time we see the Philistines opposing the Israelites in Scripture, we see a picture of error versus truth, dark versus light. Anytime you see the Philistines. And they did not know how to respond to the prayer. If you remember, they what happened when Eli and his sons got killed, they captured the ark, right? And so they took the ark into their land. And, and suddenly, you know, they here they put it beside Dagon. Now, what was the problem? I want, I want to look at the Philistine era, and I want you to think about how this era might be prevalent in our culture today. Number one, the first mistake they made was that God could ever be placed alongside of any other God. I mean, that was the first mistake they made, right? Because God is the only true God. Because, see, they treated God like a trophy God. Oh, we captured it. This is our, this is our trophy. This is our token. This is going to show us that we have captured the Israelites. So do we ever treat God as if he's one of our many gods? Do we ever do that? What else occupies the throne of our hearts? How about our thoughts? Do we ever think about God and then we're thinking about something that's not God? Think about light. We think about darkness. You know, you, you know, there, if there's light, there can be no darkness, right? Do we ever run, who do we run to when we need help? Do we run to our God, the one that we have our confidence in? Do we run to the government? Do we run to who, who at the bank? Who do we run to? And there's nothing wrong with the government. There's nothing wrong with the bank. There's nothing wrong with doctors. There's nothing wrong with all of these things. But who do we run to first? Who's on the throne of our heart? Do we seek God's wisdom in what we do? 
Do we seek God's wisdom in what we do? We talked about this last night. I, I, I was almost tempted to just talk about wisdom today after last night's prayer time. You know, we have to operate. What we have discovered is that we have to operate in a different type and level of wisdom we've ever operated in before. And as I'm, I read through the Proverbs, one proverb a day, you cover the Proverbs in a month. You really should have some discipline, by the way. If you're not doing these little discipline things, you know, here I am meddling again, right? You should be, you should be reading. Yeah, you can read a proverb a day, and you can read through the Proverbs 12 times in a year. There is so much wisdom in the Proverbs. I was going to today. I was going to tell you, Terry, you got to read Proverbs 12. If you haven't read it all, it is powerful. It says, "If your heart is right, favor flows from the Lord." This is the wisdom of God. But a devious heart invites his own condemnation. The lives of God's lovers are deeply rooted and firmly planted. Integrity and strength of a virtuous woman transform her husband into a king. I got so much underlined. The lovers of God are filled with good ideas. You need a good idea? Then are you a lover of God? He says they're filled with good ideas that are noble and pure, but the schemes of the sinner are crammed with nothing but lies. A good man takes care of his pets. Now, we know that's true, right? A good man takes care of his pets. I have a thing with my pets, right? A fool is in love with his own opinion, but wisdom means we are teachable. I mean, there's so much. Just, just This is out of the Passion Trans. I love that translation. So we need the wisdom of God, but in the day we're in, we need the wisdom. Because what is our default? We want to go back to the way we've always done everything. Well, this is the way I've done business. Let's just do it this way. No, we're in a different day. We're in a different time. God's doing a new thing. God's doing. We, we need to rise to a higher level. We don't think like we used to think. We can't think like we used to think. We can't act like we used to act. I woke up yesterday, and we've got a couple of little projects that are on the burner with us in our in our business world, you know, and and the, and one's going like gangbusters, and the others just seems like there's just a little bit of a delay like this. And the Lord said, "Be careful; that delay may be a divine delay, and be careful that you don't bulldoze through it." In other words, He did say it's not happening. He just says, "Be careful that you don't bulldoze through what looks like it would be an obvious solution." So we have to be careful. We have to, you know, our, our, and that's the way we've always operated. We go through the doors until God closes them. And when God closes them, we say, okay, we're going another direction. But God's not, he's just saying, be careful the decisions that you make in this season. Be careful how you handle your finances. Be careful of what you do with your health in this season. We're in God's remnant doesn't need to be sick and weakly. Right? What is more important to us than God? And as we cry out to God for our nation, we have to empty our hearts of anything that would try to compete with God. Are we crying out to God for my political party or for God's will? See, we have to, God, what is your will concerning this nation? Well, I'm going to take where you're going to find it right here. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. That's God's, that's God's wisdom. That's God's, that's God's will. He didn't say when the Democrats rule or when the Republicans rule. He said when the righteous rule. We've got to understand this. Number two, the error that the Philistine made is that God would be a showpiece for the people to come and see like it was a circus event. The people were going in and they gathered around to look, oh, let's look at the ark. Let's go in there and see the ark. And what they find, their God was on his face. Do we ever treat God like a showpiece? Do we ever treat God, oh God, do, you know, do your thing so we can get a big name here in the city. You know, we've had gold dust, we've had feathers, we've had pennies on the wall, not here, in, a, in the Christian body. We've seen people running, shouting, falling in the floor, laughing. 
We've seen huge crowds form in coliseums and church buildings. We've run to conferences, meetings, and worship events. We're looking for that next word. We've all done it. Was God our jack-in-the-box for us? We rub the bottle and the genie pops out and his name happens to be God and we can he'll give us whatever we wish because we want to make God the showpiece. Are we looking for God? Or are we looking for what God can do for us? Let me tell you, in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We have to understand that. Can we dare wait on God to see what God desires to do rather than what we desire? So what do we do? We give God this big grocery list. Do this for me, God. Bump, 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 bump. And God might say, I'm not in any of that. You don't even know that if I answer that, it would destroy you. We have to be careful. Number three, the era of the Philistines was the mockery of God's creation. I've never seen this before this week. You see, I'm just seeing things so differently with all this stuff that we're in. It was the mockery of God's creation. How can I say that? You had this God sitting there with a man's hands and a man's face and a fish's tail. God clearly made man, gave man dominion over all the creatures of the earth. And what are they? They're just combining all of this. Oh, it was a mockery to God. It was a mockery to his creation. I ministered last week that we are the sons of God now. Do we understand that we're the sons of God now? Not next week, not in 2024, not after the election. Now, right? We are the sons of God now. We can turn and shift atmospheres now because of the authority God has given us in the heavenlies. Do we believe that? I know you guys believe it. Do you believe it out there? Do you believe it? How does this fit in today's culture? It's God's remnant. Number one is God's not going to sit alongside of any other God in our life. If you want to be God's remnant, you better make sure there's nothing else in your heart. And that's going to take some introspection. That's going to take God coming inside and showing and revealing. That's going to take us giving Holy Spirit permission to reveal our heart, to reveal our intention to us. God, what's really in my heart? Is my agenda more important than your agenda? Is my desire more important than your desire? If we want to be the remnant, and there's a doctrine of demons that's telling, going around telling there's more than one way to God, there's more than one path to God, that Jehovah God is a mixture of all of these. It's a doctrine of demons. Doctrine of demons. There is no God who can stand before Jehovah God. And that's what we saw as, as, the, as the ark was placed before Dagon. You know, how do we ever, how do we do this? Sometimes we use man-made worship. Worship was incredible this morning, guys. The presence of God was incredible. So I think, I don't know if the presence made worship so great or worship made the presence so great. Whatever it is, it worked. But I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. We come in with hearts that are open to worship God. When we come into this place, do we truly want to worship God? Or we just want to be moved by this hit song that Dan and the team are going to sing? No, we want to worship God. Do we declare the glory, the majesty of who he is? What's in our heart when we come to worship? Are we just going to endure the, oh, we've got 20 minutes now of singing. Let's just get this behind us. I'm telling you the truth, right? How about celebrity Christians? Do we follow after celebrity, celebrity Christians? Let me tell you who God is. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, uh, and it was actually quoted in uh, the Ragama Banning. I believe Banning wrote the Ragama Revival Gospel. Is that right? God's going to use people that are in churches today that nobody knows about. That's who God's going to use to bring about his changes in the earth. 
It's not, these, it's not the big name celebrity Christians. It's people who are on their face, just like many of you guys are, seeking God and, and shifting the, the ways of time. Or do we want to do things like these bait and switch routines we've heard about so often? You know, we'll go out into the world and we'll bait the people out there, get them in here. Oh, you should come to our church. We've got this cool stuff going on. We've got smoking, most smoke machines. I mean, we've got laser lights. Then we get in here and we want to drop Jesus on them. And we say, when is God not enough? I've said it for years. You don't, you don't win the world with the world's tools. This is why so many kids are leaving churches because they're tired of the phony baloney that a lot of churches have got coming out of them. And, and the new, the new, the young, the latest generation—they want reality, they want truth, they want—they want what's real. They don't want a bunch of phony baloney stuff, right? But we got to get our numbers up because numbers equals dollars. Well, fill your church with sixteen to twenty-five-year-olds and see how many dollars that brings in, right? <laughs> you want people that are families <laughs> that are stable if you're looking for dollars. But the remnant of God is single-focused, driven to exalt God on His terms. And they're not going to back down or they're not going to compromise. And the remnant will only honor God as the true and the living God. So how did God respond to this? So they sent Him away. They sent Him over, I think it was Gath. And what did God do in Gath? He gave them tumors and rats. Let me translate tumors, hemorrhoids. That's what it was. So God gave them, they were inflicted with hemorrhoids and rats. And they said, we got to get rid of this thing because it's causing us problems. So what did they do? They said, well, we just want to know if this is really God or if it's just something, you know, something is just, you know, phenomenon we've, that's happened. So they put the ark on a cart driven by two horses that had, um, two, two horses, two cows that had never been um, led or whatever, led a wagon, who had just given birth. And they took their babies and lapped, locked them up in a stall. Now, you know, any mother's going after her babies, right? And they said, well, if the cows go this direction toward Israel, we know it's God. If it go this direction, it was just happenstance. As soon as they put the, the cows on the wagon, wow, right off to Israel they went. To, to uh, Beth Shemesh is where they ended up. So we go to 1 Samuel six thirteen. So we looked at the Philistine era. Now we're going to look at the Israelite era. And 1 Samuel six thirteen it says, The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they saw the ark, they were overjoyed. The, har- the cart came into the field of a man named Joshua and stopped beside a large rock. Now, Beth Shemesh, we think, is from the tribe of Dan. Let me make that clear. That's important as we go forward. The cart came into the field of a man named Joshua, stopped by a large rock. So the people broke up the wood of the cart for a fire and killed the cow, sacrificed him to the Lord as a burnt offering. Now, several men of the tribe of Levi lifted the ark of the Lord and the chest containing the gold rats and the gold tumors. So they put gold, the kings, the five kings, put rats and tumors that had been in you know, gold as an offering to their God, to our God, like he needed that. And it said, and, and uh, so they uh, placed him on a large rock. Many sacrifices and burnt offerings were offered to the Lord that day by the people of Beth Shemes. The five Philistine rulers watched all this, and they returned to Ekron that same day. So they left basically with, well, I guess it was the Israelite God that caused all this. So then we get to verse 17. It says, the five gold tumors were sent by the Philistines as a guilt offering to the Lord... <laughs> And they were gifts from the rulers of the, you know, Ashdod, Gaza, all these others, five, the five cities. Five gold rats represent the five Philistine towns and their surrounding villages, which were controlled by the five rulers. The large rock of Beth Shemes, where they set the ark of the Lord, still stands in the field of Joshua as a witness to what happened there. So let's see what happened there, right? 
Okay, but the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who was able to stand in the presence of the Lord, his holy God? They cried out, where can we send the ark from here? God either heals or kills, right? And, you know, you think, well, why in the world would God kill 70 men for looking in the ark? There's a lot of reasons. We go back to Numbers chapter 4. We say that the Kohathites were really the only ones. They were given the special responsibility for the holy instruments of God. And even they could not look into it or they would die. So God was, and, you know, we had Levite priests there with the, the Beth Shemesh. They clearly knew what the directions and the instructions were. They clearly knew how to handle the ark of God. But yet in their carelessness, they did not. They did not. So how do we, I want to just do a little bit of word study here, and I'm going to show you what I believe really happened uh, and why God was so angry with them. If we look at that word, and this is something the Lord gave me several years ago, you know, it's like like you're talking about, I just, you know, you kind of get upset with God, and we're going, well, that was really a bad thing to do. Why in the world would you kill 70 people for looking in your ark? I mean, I would want to look in it too, wouldn't you? I would want to see what was inside the ark. But if we look at that word look in the Hebrew, it means to find delight or to gloat. To take pleasure in a situation. To gloat implying satisfaction over another's misfortune. So see, it was kind of like, we've got the presence here. Look what happened to you. We're, you know, we're something special. When all this time, God, it was the, God directed the cows to go to the Beth Shemise, right? Do we ever find that we might think, well, you know, there's so much happening here. We are all that in a bag of chips, and God is really liking us, and we are special. We are, we're the anointed church in the city. God's got his hand on us, and all you others are just, you know, worldly churches. We don't have anything to do with you guys. Do we ever have that kind of attitude? Or look, a church that closes doors. Well, they should have closed. Well, maybe they should have. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't have. But do we ever gloat? Do we ever, do we ever exalt ourselves by thinking that we're something special? We do not have a corner on God's presence. Let me tell you that. When God's presence manifests, we should fall on our face and all. And we shouldn't, you know, we don't have to put it on Facebook afterwards, right? Well, God showed up at Impact today, 44 Cabarrus Avenue West. Come and join us. You know what? God's presence will draw people. God's presence will draw people. The scripture tells us he resists the proud, but he draws close to the humble. God chooses where he's going to manifest his presence and what he's looking for are pure hearts. He's looking for humble hearts. If we want the presence of God in this place, our hearts have to be humble. If you want the presence of God in your home, what's your, what's your heart look like in your business and whatever you may be doing? And even as we cry out for a revival, it's the Holy Spirit who first places within us a heart that wants us to cry out for that. I mean, so many of us have been so impressed with prayer. Well, that's not something we... God put that in our hearts. We have, no, we have no reason to brag and boast about the fact, well, you know, I've got a burden to pray. Why don't you? God put that burden there. We should pray that everyone will have a burden to pray. He's the one who initiates, and he is the one who will, who will be guiding anything that happens. But we have got to know how to, to steward the word of God. We can't look at ourselves as super spiritual or super special. Everybody's special to God. Do we, ever get, do we ever get proud about all our prophetic words that we've had so many prophetic words spoken over this church? Sometimes we can get overly proud about that. Well, you know what, we're, you know what God said about this church. This is where we're supposed to be. Well, why aren't we there? 
We should be on our face seeking God as to why we're not there yet. We have no room for gloating, no room for thinking we're special. So we have the Philistine era and we have the Israelite era. Now this next era, I called it the era of the church because I think it represents the church at large even today. This is 2 Samuel 6. Now we know that the ark was placed, you know, they, they sent the ark away and it was placed in a man named Abinadab's, Abinadab's house and he stayed there for 20 years. And a son, Eleazar, was consecrated to care for that ark for 20 years. So God had consecrated a person to make sure that the ark got the treatment that it was supposed to get, the respect that it was supposed to get, the honor that it was supposed to get. David becomes the king of Israel, and he comes to take the ark back to Jerusalem because he's hearing about all these blessings that are going on at Abinadab's house as well. When when there's the presence of the Lord, there's what? There's fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures. You don't have the presence of God without blessing in every area of your life you're going to be blessed physically emotionally spiritually financially every way of your life and so as we look at verse one it says then david gathered all the elite troops in israel thirty thousand in all this was one big party david was coming to get the ark of god and he was bringing everybody thirty thousand people with him it's like having an event at the speedway we're going to fill up the speedway we're bringing the ark of god back into the speedway and then he said he led them to Balah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the, listen to this. Now David knows better than this. He knows better than this. Eleazar, now I'm, I'm wondering where Eleazar is at this point, because he's not mentioned anymore. Benadab's not mentioned anymore. I never noticed that till this week. It says, so they, he led, okay, he, so he placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's son, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of the Lord. What did David do? He brought the cart out of Abinadab's house just like the Philistines brought it out of the territory of the Philistines. Does the church ever want to do things just like the world does it because it makes sense and it's convenient? Do we, are we ever guilty of just doing things the way the world does things? David knew better than this. And then it goes on to say, Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's son, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of the Lord. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kind of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. And the Lord was angry and he was aroused against Uzzah. God struck him dead. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of the Lord. And, you know, David was fuming. David was fuming. How you know, He was angry. He was upset. What did David do? Send it over to Obed-Edom's house. So it was over there for 90 days. That's another story. I'm not even going to talk about that. But it was the biggest show event of the year and God ruined it. God ruined it. David had all this huge... Can you just imagine? I bet it was on internet. It was on email. It was probably Facebook. Guys, we're bringing the ark home today. We probably even got live live streaming, bringing the ark in. And God zaps Uzzah. What? CNN was carrying it. MSNBC, all these other, Fox News. 30,000 men. And God zaps Uzzah. Now, do we understand what might have happened? I believe that what happened was the same thing that's happening in the churches today. 
And I think there's three things we can learn from this. Number one, that there was a lack of preparation in understanding the ways of God. (coughs) Excuse me. They found themselves at the uh, threshing floor of Nacon, which, by the way, means preparation. They found themselves at the threshing floor, and they had not prepared themselves on how to properly handle the presence of God. You know, do we ever get ourselves into a place and we really have not done our homework? We really, we go ahead, we just kind of ignore, well, God, how do you want us to do it? Oh, we'll just do it the way everybody else is doing it. We'll just do it like the world's doing it. We'll just do it like we've always done. God, how do you want us to do it? And this day that we're in, as God is raising up the remnant, we cannot afford to go back and do anything the way it was done before. God, how do you want to do church? We've got to quit looking at the way they did it five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. What do you want to do today? I can imagine the, the, the boys, Uzzah and Ohio, and this is really number two, They'd grown up probably with that ark in their house. 20 years they probably lived around the ark, played around the ark. They were so familiar with the presence of God. They were so familiar with the ark. Do we ever get too familiar with God's presence? Do we ever get so familiar with his presence that we become careless and we choose not to honor him? Oh, that's the song again. It's not about the song. Worship is not about a song. It's more than a song. That's a vehicle that we use to get our hearts in tune with God. That's all it is. But we get so familiar that we, we end up with a lack of respect or a lack of reverence. We just want to, oh, let's hurry and get this thing over with. Let's get it done. Or let's sing that song last week that got everybody riled up and going. We fit God into a program or we fit him into an agenda. Do we get so familiar with God that we have no problems touching others with our attitudes and our words and our gossip, our backbiting, our strife? that we will allow division to come between a body because we're so familiar with God. We're so familiar. We don't, we don't even... We thank you so much. I appreciate that. Do we ever be, have, we, have we become that familiar? Have we been in church for so long that our services are predictable? Not here. But there was a time that we were, not so many years ago, maybe not so many months ago, you know, because we want to fit everybody's schedule. Well, let me tell you something. If we can't give God at least two hours a week, there's a problem. We're not honoring him. We should be giving him 24 hours a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But have we become so predictable that we're on a timetable and we don't have room for it? God wants to decides he wants to move in the lives of people. Well, come back next week and we'll pray for you because we really run out of time today. person may be dead next week. See, has the ark had been in Abinadab's house for so long and I asked myself, had it just become another piece of furniture? Has God just become another piece of furniture to the church? Are we at the place where we can say, God, we want to do our homework. We want to know what pleases you. We know, you know how we know by reading the word? We want to know what, how, what, how you think. We want to know how you feel. We want to know the choices and decisions you would make. We don't want to just do it the way it's always seemed to work in the past. I'm telling you, things that worked in the past are not going to work in the day we're in. Let me tell you that. I believe that with all of my heart. I've, I've said this, and I'm not going to say much, but I, I believe back in about April, the Lord said to me, You're in a, you, the church is in a season of Joseph. 
We're in a season of Joseph, which is a season of preparation. And he very clearly almost yelled at me, I'm not saying hoarding, because hoarding is based on fear. He said, but you're in a season of preparation. Be careful some of the decisions that you make in this season, because it's going to affect down the road. We need to be careful how we spend our money. We need to be careful how we treat our bodies. We need to be careful what we do in our in our church services. We need to be careful. In revival, true revival, true moves of God, programs and agendas get kicked out and his presence will set the agenda. His presence will set the agenda. What if you came to church? What if today we get so fired up with God that we we don't leave here to 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Because God has fired us up. God is doing something, not just here for the sake of being here, but doing something in our lives, changing our hearts and changing our lives. And then the third thing that we can learn is that God does not grandstand for man. Kind of like what the Philistines were. David brought 30,000 people to watch the procession. I wonder if it was really about God or was it about David? I wonder, I don't know. When God's presence is for everyone, isn't it? He said he brought 30,000 of his choice men. Let me tell you, there's no distinction in the body of Christ. There is no distinction in the body of Christ. God's just as much here for the person who might be the, make the least amount of money as he is for the person who makes the most money. He's here just as much for the person who's least educated as he is for the person who is most educated. The least will be the greatest. That's who God welcomes. During revival, there'll be signs, wonders, and miracles, but they can never be the main event. See, when God starts to do incredible things in our lives, that can never become the focal point. It has to be all about Him. God's presence must be held in the highest esteem, and all must point to Him and to His Word. We can never have the big event that causes us to compromise God's presence. So how do we revive the remnant? I'm going to read a couple of scriptures. Number one is the remnant always exalts the majesty of God. Always exalts the majesty of God. Psalm 29 tells us. Let me read this. In my Bible, the heading is the glory of God thunders. The glory of God thunders. Do we always exalt his majesty? I'm telling you, if we come into the sanctuary to worship God and our focus is on exalting His majesty, His honor, His glory, things take a different appearance. It says, Proclaim His majesty, all you mighty champions, you sons of Almighty God, giving all the glory and strength back to Him. Be in awe before His majesty. Are Are we in awe about His presence? God. I told Terry a while ago, I said I was so undone. Just the presence of God just starts to just starts to move. And nothing's appropriate to say. Nothing's appropriate to do. You just you're just in awe. Be in awe before his majesty. Be in awe before such power and might. Come worship wonderful Yahweh, arrayed in all of his splendor. Bowing in worship as he appears in the beauty of holiness. Give him the honor due his name. Worship him wearing the glory garments. Now that's another study all in itself. Are we wearing our glory garments today? 
of your holy priestly calling. We are kings and priests. Do we act like it? Do we think like it? Do we talk like it? Say, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. If it was before one minute ago, it's under the blood. If you, re- if you repent, doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what anyone's done. You know, God doesn't see black, white, red, purple, anything. He doesn't see gender. Neither does he see the past. A repented past is gone forever. Thank God. Aren't you glad? It's the devil that wants to remind you of every mistake you've ever made. Come worship wonderful Yahweh, bowing in worship. Give him the honor due his name. Worship him wherein the holy altar. He told you that. Of your holy priestly calling. The voice of the Lord echoes through the skies and the seas. The glory of God reigns as he thunders in the clouds. So powerful is his voice. So brilliant and bright. How majestic as he thunders over the great waters. His tympanic thunder topples the strongest of trees. His symphonic sound splinters the mighty forest. I loved when I was reading about Jonathan and he and his armor bearer. And he goes in and wipes out 20 of the Philistines. You know what? God, and I told you a moment ago, God sends an earthquake. All he has to do is speak down and say, okay, earthquake happened. And the Philistines were destroyed. Two men. God and you are a majority, let me tell you. God can turn anything around. But do you know what Jonathan said before he went with his armor bearer? He said, it doesn't matter whether we're few or many. With God, that's, you know, God, the victory is going to come. That's the attitude we have. It doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what my checkbook says. With God, the battle is going to be won. If we will just believe what God says. Now he moves Zion's mountains by the might of his voice, shaking the snowy peaks with his ear-splitting sound. The lightning fire flashes, striking as he speaks. God reveals himself when he makes the fault lines quake. Shaking desert, speaking his voice. God's mighty voice makes the deer to give birth. His thunderbolt voice lays the forest bare. In his temple all fall before him with each one shouting, Glory, glory, the God of glory. Above the furious flood, the enthroned one reigns. The king God rules with eternity at his side. This is the one who gives his strength and might to his people. That's you. This is the God that has given you your strength and your might. This is the Lord giving us his kiss of peace. You have the answer for what the world is going through today. So number one, the remnant always exalts the majesty of God. Number two, the remnant magnifies the holiness of God. Now that's not just with our lips, that's with our life. That's with our life. Our little granddaughter was with us this past week, about two weeks, for the last two weeks. Precious, pure heart, sweetheart. Love her so much. Not prejudice. But she flipped on a Disney movie. I don't even know. It was, an old, it was an old movie. I don't even know what it was now. She said, come watch it with me. So we started watching it. She said, I haven't seen this in a long time. And I, I don't know. I'd ever seen it. But the innuendos in it were not honoring God. And I said, did you hear that? She, yeah, like she'd never heard it before. I said, Ruby Kate, and this house is dedicated to God. We're not going to have this going out into our home. So we honor God with 
the things that we do. David said, I'll set no wicked thing before my eye. What do we do? What, you know, we honor God, His holiness. That means we're separate, we're set apart. We don't act like the world. We don't think like the world. We don't act, we don't do the things that the world, we don't compromise what the Word of God says. He says, you be holy because I am holy. Isaiah 6 says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphims, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their face, two they covered their feet, two and the other flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. I believe God is saying that. He said, "What? Who can I send? There's a remnant God is wanting to send out, but it's going to take a holy heart, a holy life. It's going to take that purging that only Holy Spirit can do in our life. It's going to take that choice to walk away from those things that defile. God is not a common. He's not common. He's not profane. So we have to exalt the majesty. We also magnify His holiness. And the remnant stewards well the presence of God. I want to back up to Psalm 15. The remnant stewards well the presence of God. In other words, the presence is living with us. Who do we, how do we treat the presence? Just in church, how do you treat Him in your home, your business, everything you do? You steward his presence everywhere we go. Psalm 15 says, Lord, who dares to dwell with you? Who presumes the privilege of being close to you? Living next to you in your shining place of glory. Who are those who daily dwell in the life of the Holy Spirit? They are passionate and wholehearted, always sincere, always speaking the truth, for their hearts are trustworthy. We need, we need to go through this. God, is my heart trustworthy? Can you depend upon me? Can God entrust you with one of his ones he wants to bring in? Can he entrust us? Can he entrust this church with people that are broken and hurting? They refuse to slander or insult others. They'll never listen to gossip or rumors, nor would they even harm another with their words. They will speak out passionately against evil and evil workers while commending the faithful ones who follow after the truth. So he's not saying you're passive and you don't do it. He says you're going to speak out passionately against evil. See, the body of Christ has got to rise up and speak out about, we've got to call evil, evil. And quit being wimps, right? We've got to quit being wimps. We're supposed to speak passionately about against evil and evil workers. While commending the faithful ones who follow after truth, they make firm commitments and follow through, even at a great cost. In other words, whatever you say, you do. They never crush others with exploitation or abuse, and they would never be bought with a bribe against the innocent. 
They will never be shaken. They will stand firm forever. So that is the characteristics of the remnant. I want to stand, if you will. I want everybody in this church, me included, to be a part of the remnant. I choose to be that. I want to ask you, do you choose to be that? It's a choice. You know, Saul's men chose to leave him. Gideon's men were sent home, but they chose not to have the characteristics that they needed. Some went home because they were afraid. Others went home because they weren't drinking their water right. But it was a choice. Some said, I'm not willing to change my ways to be classified as the remnant for God. That's a choice we all get to make. And I believe God wants us to make a decision. Are we going to be part of that remnant? Or are we just going to continue on playing the game, doing the dance, same old, same old, and nothing happens? Something always happens. We go backwards. We never just stand still. So I'm going to open the altars. I know we got social distancing, but you know what? I believe God's going to protect us. Do what you feel you need to do. If you don't feel comfortable, don't do it. That's okay. God can touch you back there. But I just feel like that God, we're just going to open the altar. I'm going to be the first to say, God, I want to be a remnant. I want you to examine my heart. I want to know if there's anything in me that's hindering what you want to do. I want to know if you can trust my heart. I don't even know if I can trust my heart. I'm not sure. God, is there something in me that I don't even know about? Is there some attitude in me that would cause me to be unfaithful to you, to your will, to your word? I want to be a part of that remnant that's going to change the city and change our nation. I want to let go of everything. I don't want to wear the badge of Christianity and not really possess the goods of Christianity. God, we just thank you, Lord. God, I'm asking you to reveal our hearts to us. God, your people are reaching out to you. Your people are crying out to you, God. We are your people. We want to be who you need for us to be in this day that we are in. God, we want to have such an ear to hear what you are saying today. We want a now word. Yesterday's word is an old word. We want a now word, God. We want to be filled with with you, filled with your, your glory, your wonder, your majesty, Lord God, because we represent who you are in this earth. You've given us, Lord, the responsibility of, of representing you in the earth. God, we want to do it with, with we want to do it well, Father. God, our passion and our desire is to make you famous. Our passion and desire, Lord God, is to give you leeway to do what you want to do in the the midst of this body. God, when we walk in our walks in life, in our marketplace areas, God, we we want to take you with us. And God, we want to be so in tune to you that we can hear when you say, stop, talk, give, turn around, leave. Don't do that. God, that's what we're wanting. We're wanting to be so close to you, God. 
So, God, we repent of hard-headedness. We repent of stubbornness. We repent, Father, of even attitudes and, and thoughts and actions, Lord, that have been inconsistent with your word. Lord, we call them sins. We repent of sins, Father. We just ask you to fill us, engulf us with your precious spirit, Lord. It's you working in us that makes us to will and to do your good pleasure, God. Thank you, Lord. God, it's you that empowers us to live victorious. It's you that makes us more than a conqueror. God, we understand that the enemy's at war with a remnant. We're not shying away. We're not shying away. Because we are more than victorious. Thank you, God. God, I pray as pastor of this church that you show us how we can honor you more than we ever have. How we can declare your majesty greater than we've ever declared it, Lord. God, how we can get rid of any familiarity of religion. Lord, that's a religious spirit. God, we just kick it out in Jesus' name. We want to be so in all of you, Lord. We just want to fall at your feet and worship you, Lord. We want to be speechless before you as you do what you do best, and that's be God. We have nothing without you, but we have everything with you, God. Thank you, God. Purify us. Cleanse us, Lord. Set us free. Thank you, Father. God, we so need you. We so desperately need you. God, I pray that you give us a burning hunger for you, a burning hunger for your word, a burning hunger for your presence. God, that we're not satisfied with the junk food of the world. God, that we feast on the word. And I believe with all of my heart, if this group of people would feast only on the word for a set period of time, we'd see the change in our community. I believe it with all of my heart. I believe you'd see a change in your family. We feast only on the Word. I remember Smith Wigglesworth one time, he said he, he, he reads nothing but the Word of God. He read nothing but the Word of God. He didn't have time for newspapers or any of the other. And he said, I never read more than about 15 minutes, but I never go 15 minutes without reading. What if we own, think about how much time we feast, we fill our minds with junk. I'm not talking about sinful things, just stuff that has no, no value senseless stuff that has no value. What if we were feasting on the Word of God? What if we had poured into our kids a proverb a day as they were growing up? As Deuteronomy 6 says we should have. What if we'd have done that? It's not too late to start, is it? What if we draw a line in the sand and say, Today, God, July 12th, 2020, it's a line, there's a line in the sand and we're not backing up. We're not backing up. So you're probably saying, what does this look like? I don't have a clue after today. I just know it's going to be different. I know I'm different. I know many of you are different. I watch you. Your countenances are different. Your, your devotion is different. Your determination is different. So God, we thank you, Lord. We just want to please you, Lord. We just want to please you. We just want to make you famous in Concord. That's our goal. All honor and glory belong to you. All majesty belongs to you. 
bow our hearts before you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we just bless you in Jesus' holy name. Thank you, Lord. Bless you. May his face shine upon you. May his favor follow after you. And may you be just saturated with peace. In Jesus' name.